Sirius XM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that. The worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the the future, not to the past, where they don't rest on their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward. Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. Don't drop it, knock it, you can't stop it. Headed for the top of the market just like a rocket. Shoes of other name, insane, won't sustain. With Nike, Air Power will still remain. Just do it. This week, a Stanford alumnus who took up running after being cut from his high school baseball team. A fierce competitor who ran under legendary track and field coach Bill Bowerman. My old coach firmly believed that an ounce and a pair of shoes over a course of a mile was worth 10,000 pounds in the last three yards. And uh, so he was obsessed with it and it kind of caught my attention. And then I became kind of a guinea pig of his on experimental shoes. That relationship grew from experiments with running shoes at the University of Oregon into a business idea that began with only $1,000 and a handshake. Most people thought it was crazy. I know uh, when I finally got going a little bit, people around Portland, Oregon, which is kind of a small city uh, atmosphere in a, in a larger city, they said, Phil Knight, he's got a Stanford MBA and he's selling Japanese sneakers. And uh, so uh, most people thought it was crazy, but I didn't think it was crazy. And the good thing was my college professor that I wrote the paper for didn't think it was crazy. He set out to prove his doubters wrong, taking his company from startup to small business, dealing with many struggles and challenges. So basically, I uh, get on uh, on the weekends and the evenings, and I go out to high schools, and I say, I've got this great shoe, and it's at a good price, and it's a good value, and you should have your kids buy it. And then uh, some of them would place orders there, and some of them would ring the doorbell at 7 or 8 o'clock at night. My father would be watching TV, and there'd be a kid trying on a pair of shoes in his living room. Well, I've had a lot of people tell me, we know how it ends, but we think he's not going to make it. Yeah, there were a lot of uh, touch-and-go moments. To a global brand, revolutionizing the way we think about athletic shoes and clothing. We were probably about $600 million in sales then, by about 1984, and we really needed a boost, and we thought this young basketball player from North Carolina might be able to help us that way, and his name was Michael Jordan. Good luck was that uh, David Stern banned the color red on shoes. They had to be either white or black in the NBA, so we ran an ad that said, banned in the NBA, and the sales just took right off. <laughs> on September 15th, Nike created a revolutionary new basketball shoe. On October 18th, the NBA threw them out of the game. Fortunately, the NBA can't stop you from wearing them. Air Jordans from Nike. Nike, 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 Nike. This week on Stanford Pathfinders, Nike Chairman Emeritus and co-founder Phil Knight. I can't imagine anybody enjoying their life more. Here's your host, Howard Wolf. 
Today on this episode of Stanford Pathfinders, our focus is on an ethos, a way of life, a mindset that is integrally woven into the fabric of Stanford University, entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is at the core of the Stanford story, dating back to the university's founding in 1891 by Leland Stanford, an entrepreneur many times over. And it continues to be a central element of the Stanford of today. No matter who is involved, its students, faculty, or alumni, Stanford embraces the entrepreneur and his or her willingness to pursue the path not taken by others. The United States has been blessed for decades with amazing entrepreneurs who have built companies and brands that have not only become household names, but have provided employment for millions and turbocharged the U.S. economy. Entrepreneurship, in many ways, has built our country. There's no one type of entrepreneur. Instead, each does it his or her own way, but they all share one thing in common, a relentless desire to make it happen, no matter the odds or obstacles. We have with us here today one of the world's most famous, innovative, and tenacious entrepreneurs, Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. His story, as a man in pursuit of a dream, a business leader trying to solve a problem, and a husband and father dedicated to making it all work for his family, is in so many ways the story of America. Phil, welcome to the show. For sure. Um, your reputation precedes you as an internationally acclaimed entrepreneur, but then you go and write a book, a memoir about yourself. So I'm dying to know something. Which was more difficult, building Nike or writing your book? Well, uh, the book took a long time, but Nike took even longer. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that, uh, that we went public in, in 1980 and we started in 1962. So we were 18 years, uh, kind of an 18-year overnight sensation, right? But the book was three years and it was, if not as difficult as Nike, it was quite difficult. And so is it true that there were some Stanford faculty members that were somehow involved in helping you with your writing skills as you were thinking about writing this book? I've heard a couple names, Abraham Verghese mm -hmm. and Adam Johnson. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Well, I took a, a couple of writing classes at, uh, when I was 63 years, a year old, I took a writing class at Stanford and then I followed it up a couple of years later with another one. And uh, that's where I met Adam Johnson. And uh, so he was absolutely key. He, uh, I think of him as my writing teacher to this day. And, uh, and he's the so, author of The Master Orphan Son, a Pulitzer Prize winning book mm -hmm. about North Korea. Mm -hmm. He is. And he's also written a National Book Award winner. And he's, uh, he's a talent. He's uh, what uh, Evan Boland, the head of the department, says the future of uh, American literature. He's, he's an incredible talent. And I'm very lucky to have. Uh, uh, been around him at all. And then Abraham Verghese uh, really didn't edit it uh, much. He just he had kind of one overview, but I've known him a little bit and he was very inspirational to me. So mm -hmm. let me get this right. You live up in Portland, Oregon area. Mm -hmm. Stanford University is in Stanford, California in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. So what would you do? Would you fly down on a weekly basis well, to go to class? By the time I'm 63 years old, we've had enough success so I have access to a private plane. Ah, that helps. So the class was once a week from six to nine. And I would leave the office at three o'clock, I'd get on the plane, fly down here, go into the classroom at six o'clock with a bunch of 18-year-old kids and uh, spend three hours, three delightful hours there. And then afterwards, we'd go out and have a few beers together. With the students? With the students and with the teacher, and uh, which was as good as the class itself. And then I'd go get on the plane and uh, go to work at eight o'clock the next day, completely reinvigorated. So did they know who you were at first in the back of the classroom? I mean, this 
more mature guy in the back room? They did notice the age difference, but they, <laughs> they pretended to accept me, which was delightful. And a few of them knew that I was uh, CEO at Nike at the time, and a few of them didn't. How fantastic. Oh, what an amazing experience for students in that class. It was a great experience for me as well. So speaking of students in a class, you went to Stanford, and you were an MBA student in the Graduate School of Business. Mm -hmm. And one hears that the Nike plan was actually... Um, the result of an assignment that you had while at business school. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, more than here, it's true. That uh, I took a, a, a class from uh, uh, Frank Schallenberger, a you know, beloved professor at, uh, in the business school in entrepreneurship. And the, the assignment was to write for the 10 weeks. You had a, 10 weeks to write a paper, either attaching yourself to a business in the Bay Area or coming up with a business for the purpose of the paper. And rule one, number one, was write about something you know, which was very limiting to me. <laughs> but I had uh, been on the track team at Oregon uh, with a renowned coach, uh, Bill Bowerman, who was in the uh, Track and Field Hall of Fame. And he was always tinkering with track shoes to, uh, to make them lighter to, so that he felt the weight was just critical for a distance runner. And uh, so I developed the thesis that uh, if you were going to start a uh, – track shoe or any kind of shoe company, you wouldn't start it in the U.S. You wouldn't start it in Germany where the uh, leading brands were being made because it's so labor intensive. And so the thesis was that uh, can Japanese sports shoes do to German sports shoes what uh, Japanese cameras did to German cameras. And uh, yeah, I got excited about the paper and uh, I got a good grade on the paper. I was going to ask that question. Did you get an A? I did get an A. Fantastic. And thank you, Stanford, for getting that right. Thank you, Frank Schallenberger, who was just a wonderful man. And uh, he inspired me to go try this. And, you know, it's funny, I was thinking, I've, you know, I step back every now and then and think back. The sequence had to be right because uh, I was uh, basically, they had universal military training. So I was six months in the Army as a second lieutenant. And that steeled me a little bit. It was, it was good. And I didn't enjoy it, but uh, it was good. <laughs> and then I went here to Stanford Business School. And without that sequence, I, n I never would have had the balls to do that right out of the University of Oregon. But I had just the right amount of background to, uh, to dare to do that. Mm. That was pretty gutsy. Yeah. At and that you, time, yeah. And like, then you had the buddy who went with you at yeah, first. Yeah, yeah, and then he bailed. And then he bailed. Yeah. And most guys probably would have bailed at that point. I had a long walk. I was in Hawaii, as you know. And yes. I had a long walk on the beach. And I said, you know, if I don't do it now, yeah. I'm not going to do it. So and, I better go. And, and that is absolutely true, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah, for sure. So the world thinks of Nike as this amazing success story, and it, it absolutely is. Uh, Nike is one of the most recognizable and valuable brands in the world, but this didn't come easy, and you alluded to that earlier. In fact, it was exceedingly hard with trials and tribulations that would test even the most dedicated entrepreneur. Are, are there lessons that you can share with the listeners that you learned in all of this adversity you encountered? I think in many ways— uh the uh, the book Shoe Dog, which was the, my memoir, is really the entrepreneur's story. It's it's a very common story for entrepreneurs. That uh, I know, I was on a uh, uh, I was on the Sun Valley conference, and I was talking to the people from uh, Facebook, and I said, I don't know anything about Facebook other than I saw the movie uh, <laughs> uh, that uh, it was given. The social but, network, social sure. network, right? And they said, but I'll bet your experiences were similar. And the VP said, absolutely. He says that if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to be prepared for a lot of dark days, so you better be doing something you really like. Near-death experiences. I yeah, mean, the many, company almost died yeah. many, many times. Many times, absolutely. And, um, you know, two, two great things for me, and I think it's a tribute to, uh, to higher education, 
you know, Frank Schallenberger, the entrepreneurship teacher, kind of prepared you for that. He had a lot of speakers that had almost failed and came in and succeeded, and some of them that failed and didn't recover. And then my old track coach uh, uh, was just a, a great man and a great influence on my life. He always said uh, he was not a track coach, really. He was a professor of competitive response. And uh, so uh, those two people had enormous influence. And uh, so when we were near death's door, we, we never looked back. We, we were kind of convinced we were going we were going to make it, even though maybe the odds were against us. That, and, uh, and did others we believe? To, well, the, the, the book uh, that, uh, that you've alluded to, basically there were five kind of key characters, and all five of us did. Yeah, it was an interesting and eccentric group of, Very. of, of founders. So we think of, of Nike as this company with people like you, ex-runners, right? <laughs> but that wasn't necessarily the case. Tell us a little bit about those founders that joined you in this trip. Well, there were, there were uh, trip. myself and four others. And, and one of the others, well, actually kind of two of them were, were, were athletes that uh, Jeff Johnson, who went to Stanford and I met here, uh, was a, a quite a good distance runner for Stanford. Enjoy the process, not just the result. Process, I think, is really important. You've got to, got to keep teach the kids that, you know, it's not all about uh, the, the end here. It's about the day-to-day. This is Stanford Pathfinders. More with Nike founder Phil Knight coming up. This is Stanford Pathfinders on Sirius XM Insight 121. I'm Howard Wolf and I'm speaking with Nike founder Phil Knight. So Nike seems like the absolute perfect name for the company. But what I learned was that you, you wanted another name that your team did not like. Outvoted, you you ultimately acquiesced. Can you tell us a bit about that story? And what was the name that you preferred for the company that ultimately became known as Nike? Well, what happened was we had uh, we were a distributor for a Japanese company, and they pulled the rug out from under us. So I said, we're going to do it under our own brand name. So we got to have a name, and we don't have any money to research it. We're just going to have each of the 45 employees put in a name in a hat. And, and the old name was Blue Ribbon Sports, right? Well, that was the company name, but we were selling Tiger Shoes. The tiger Shoes. And uh, so we, everybody put in a name, and my name was uh, Dimension 6, uh, which I kind of liked, but... Uh, that Jeff Johnson, the uh, the Stanford graduate, put in the name Nike, and everybody thought that was the best name, and I thought about it, well, it's, it's probably better than my name, so we did take it. And I said at the time, I, I don't know if I like it that much, but I think it will grow on me, and it did grow on me. And my understanding of the story is that the manufacturer in Japan was ready to finalize the first batch of shoes, and they said, we've got the swoosh, but what's the name? Right. And it forced the function right there, right? Right before we had to come up with a name, that's right. And you just said, okay, let's go with Nike. Let's go with it. I think it turned out pretty well. Uh, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, your father was a, a huge figure in your life. Mm-hmm. But whereas you wanted to pursue the unconventional path, he was focused on the path well-worn and the concept of respectability. Mm-hmm. At the end, however, he came to value greatly what you had accomplished. So what's the lesson for the listeners here? Because you spent a number of years trying to gain your father's approval and show him that what you were doing was actually respectable. Well, I think it's a lesson for everybody. You have to do what you want to do, not what people expect you to do. And when I went to him and said, I'm going to sell shoes, I knew it would break his heart. 
you know, here he's, uh, you know, helped with my education at, as an undergraduate at Oregon, as an MBA at Stanford, seen me become a CPA and uh, do all those things and say, I'm going to go sell shoes. And not only sell and shoes, you were selling shoes out of the back of a car at first. out of the back of a car. He had no capital, but this is what I wanted to do and this is what I had to do. So, um, um, yes, that uh, he, he was a bu- son of a butcher. So that for him, you know, having become a lawyer and really quite a prominent one and a successful man, that meant the world to him because he'd come up that way. I didn't have those same problems or whatever, so, uh, you know, uh, things weighing on my shoulders. And I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. And I thought this is what I'd be happiest at doing as a calling. And so that's what I did. And I'll have to give you a postscript on that. The, uh, my own son uh, has comes to me and he says... Um, I want to make movies with dolls. And I go, what? <laughs> <laughs> Channeling and, your father and, from and, 30 and, years prior? Exactly. And, and I said, here, he was a very bright young man with a virtually straight A's in college, and I, uh, but he wanted to go to work for an animation company using, uh, you know, basically uh, stick figure animation. And uh, so that's what he's been doing, and he got uh, nominated for four Academy Awards and is now the, the lead director on the latest... Uh, um, movie from uh, Paramount, which is uh, the uh, Transformers movie, and uh, so he's uh, he's doing okay. So that's respectable, and you approve. I do now. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about your dad. Let's talk about your mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, your mother was also instrumental in your becoming who you are today. In your memoir, you say something, and I'm just curious what it means. It says, "Because mothers are are our first coaches." Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Mothers are our first coaches. Well, I think coaches. that's true of everybody. That, uh, uh, you know, coach for me is sort of a, the ultimate uh, compliment. And basically, it's a person that uh, teaches you values. And, uh, you know, your mother is your first coach. That uh, You come out of the womb and she starts coaching you from day one. So and, speaking, of, speaking of coaches, Bill Bowerman, mm-hmm. this amazing man, this icon in the track world, mm-hmm. was your mentor, your partner in Nike. Mm-hmm. And as you said earlier that he he said, I don't teach you how to run. I teach you how to be competitive. Mm-hmm. What made him so special? What was it about Bill Bowerman that was so unique? Oh, I think, you know, it's a question you can ask about any. I, I consider him a great man. I think you can ask that question about any great man. He, he come up with a lot of different uh, th- uh, things that influence your life. Uh, his father was uh, the governor of the state of Oregon that uh, his father wanted him to be a lawyer, and he said, I want to be a track coach, and uh, but he was going to be a good one, and he became, uh, you know, a, a great track coach, but he was always monking and tinkering, trying to get things better for whatever it was. He really uh, invented synthetic tracks. To have luck, it takes a lot of work. He says, hell, you can't make a screw. Well, that's the wrong thing to tell a track man is you can't do something basically laid them himself down at, uh, on the runways at the University of Oregon with obviously 3M and others came along and commercialized it better than he could and he really kind of was the forerunner of, of what ultimately became Gatorade. He was always one that said, I don't care what it tastes like, I want you to just get healthier and faster and better. So everybody would say, oh, that tastes terrible, which uh, he might have been a commercial success with that as well if he just had a, a sweet ta- a taste to the, to the fluids. <laughs> mm. Do you miss him? Yeah. Very much. I uh, I talk to him to this day. Oh, that's sweet. Um, you've been known to tell young people to think long and hard about how they want to spend their lives 
and with whom they want to spend their lives, and that they should not simply settle for a profession or even a career, Mm -hmm. but instead to seek a calling. Why do you tell young people that? And and what if young people don't have a calling? You knew what you wanted to do. If you don't have a calling, keep looking. No, I, I think— So I that's, that's said, the answer. If you don't have a calling— For, for me, but, you know, there are a lot of people that, uh, you know, decide what they're going to be, like, uh, and even very, you know, very uh, laudatory professions. I want to be a doctor when I'm 18 and I become a really good doctor. But I kind of feel sorry for those people because, for me, in life, the search is half the fun. And that, uh, you know, that I don't think you, you're, you're most lucky, I think, to find happiness if you're still searching in your 20s. And what I always wanted and what I tell people today is find it before you're th- by the time you're 30. But don't find but, it too soon because you might not be finding the right thing. Because you're, you're, don't, don't rush it is the main thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. And do, do these young people listen to you? Uh, yeah, I don't know whether they ultimately do that, but they pay attention. In your memoir, Shoe Dog, mm-hmm. you say that your secret regret is that you can't do it all over again. So what do you mean by that statement? I can't imagine anybody enjoying their life more. I remember there was a, an article a time ago, who has, when I was still CEO at Nike, says, who has the best job in America, the head of Disney or the head of Microsoft? And I said, the article's got it all wrong. I got the best job. And uh, so it was, I've just enjoyed the whole thing and I, I'd like to do it all over again. It's been that much fun. Fantastic. Phil, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thank you. I graduated from this school in 1962 more than half a century ago. It was a time when jet travel was just beginning with the introduction of the Boeing 707. There was no Silicon Valley per se. There were no fax machines. There was no internet. There were no cell phones, no iPads. The latest technological development was the color TV. There was no such thing as venture capital. The number one company in the world was General Motors. Commercial banks were not allowed to engage in investment banking activities. There is absolutely nothing in my journey that has any specific application for what awaits you. Therefore, why, before this, the greatest class ever to graduate from this best business school on the planet? Why, why did the dean ask me to be here? And my answer is, I don't really know. But I suppose there may be some hope that parts of my journey might be relevant in attitude and philosophy. I hope so. But why I chose to accept is perfectly clear to me. The answer is, it is personal. For me, it is a rounding of the circle. There is a part of me that was born here. I had come here at age 22, a bit lost. For me, an extrovert was a person who stared at other people's shoes. Shy, insecure, unsure of what I wanted to do with my life. Two years later, I left, much better educated. I was still shy and insecure, but I knew what I wanted to do if only I could pull it off. And that was to bring to life the business plan written in Frank Schallenberger's entrepreneurship class. So I returned 52 years after my own graduation to this place, this magical place, which is an extended part of me. I return to say thank you here where all the aspiration began. Now that you have graduated, the goal should not be to seek a job or even a career, but to seek a calling. That search has just begun. 
I have in my travels occasionally met promising young people who insist they are not going to ask for help along the way. They want to figure it out themselves. Mine was the opposite approach. It is hard enough out there. Get all the help you can. Getting help really is just a part of a lifelong search for wisdom. And don't be afraid to come back to the school that spawned you. Frank Schellenberger always raised my spirits when, when I was feeling low and wanted to get a hold of it. Bob Davis and Mike Spence each spent 10 years on the Nike Board of Directors. And there are a couple other lessons. Two nines working together will be two tens working for their own careers every time. Ability and desire must always trump money and power. There is such a thing as managing creativity and dare to take chances lest you leave your talent buried in the ground. And where there is no struggle, there can be no art. And finally, there is this thought. 10 years from now, the first of you will be asked to give the commencement speech to what will then be the finest class in the school's history. You'll be a bit torn. You are multitasked to the max. There is no time, and then you'll accept. Because there is a part of you that longs to go back to a place and a time and a self forever gone. And looking for things to say, include in your consideration moments from the school's history. You might even look back to that time from the deep past, that moment over six decades before, when Frank Schellenberger, beloved professor of entrepreneurship, said the words that meant so much to me, the words that became the mantra for his class, the words that said, the only time you must not fail is the last time you try. I'm Howard Wolf, host of Stanford Pathfinders. We've spent this session with Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. What an amazing conversation we had as he shared with us the near-death experiences that he experienced as the founder of Nike. Inspirational stories of all that he went through to found this iconic company and its Stanford roots, having started with a paper he wrote when he was at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford. There were so many parts of this interview with Phil Knight that I found just amazing. But one piece that really struck me was the degree to which Phil talked about the power of relationships, whether it be the relationship that he forged with his coach, Bill Bowerman, at the University of Oregon, who later became the co-founder of Nike with him, or the relationships with his co-founders, and also the relationship with his family and the balancing of the starting of this company with his growing family at home. In coming weeks, we can look forward to other interviews with amazing Stanford alums. Coming up next, a session with Jerry Yang, the founder of Yahoo, a company that revolutionized the internet. And then later, an interview with Mike McFall, a current Stanford professor as well as an alum, but the former US ambassador to Russia, who shares with us his feelings about the Russian-American relationship today. Thanks for joining us on Stanford Pathfinders on Sirius XM Insight. If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the Sirius XM app. Okay. You know what? 
you are the easiest guy in the world to talk to. <laughs> well, I and, I, and Phil, I was nervous because you're Phil Knight, right? And, <laughs> That's and, right. And, and I'm, I'm thinking, this is like talking to one of my fraternity brothers. Yeah. Yeah. You're a delightful human being. Well, thank you for saying so. 